Let me say happy Sabbath to everyone. I'm very thankful to be here with you all as we are here dealing with family life and talking about the home. And throughout the week, from Thursday night, we've been connecting. We've been looking at Bible prophecy and seeing how Bible prophecy presents a very thorough platform, even an impetus, a, a stimulus to why we need to get our homes in order. And uh, I believe that there will be no exception as it relates to what God wants to share with us even this afternoon. In order for us to receive what the Lord wants to give, it is imperative that God gives us ears to hear. And this does not come naturally. And as a result of that, we cannot obtain it by might or by power, but only by God's spirit. And the Bible teaches that God's spirit does not come by default. But the Bible teaches us in Luke 11 and verse 13 that the same way that an earthly father wants to give good gifts unto his children, it says, even so how much the more shall our heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him. And you know that asking is synonymous to prayer. And so if we want to have ears to hear the, what the spirit wants to say to the church this afternoon, then we need to take a moment for prayer. And so even though I know it's uh, fairly crowded in here, I believe that if there's enough room that if we can, let's kneel together as we approach the Lord in prayer. And if you can't kneel, then you just bow your heads where you are reverently. But if you can kneel, let's kneel together and let us approach the Lord in prayer at this time. Our loving Father, we are very grateful that you have privileged us to come together even in the house of prayer where there is healing, that we can hear your spirit speak unto our hearts and show us how to be a people prepared to meet our God. Father, we recognize that we have sinned against you in word, thoughts, and deeds, and for these things we beg of your forgiveness. And we're so grateful that you're abundant in mercy. Your word tells us that you even love to be merciful to us. And so, Lord, I praise you and thank you so much that we can claim the mercy of God if we come to thee in faith. And therefore, dear God, I now ask not only for the forgiveness of our sins, but we ask for power. Lord, what has to take place during this hour cannot be done by simple might or power. It can only be done by your spirit. And so we ask for the presence of your Holy Spirit to come into our hearts, not just the building, but our hearts, and that you would grant us the mind of Christ that we'll be able to hear your words and not only hear them, but be doers of your word. And I am grateful that you have heard this prayer. And Lord, while on others, you're going to bless this afternoon. I pray, please do not pass me by. I am asking for a fresh revelation of Jesus Christ for myself. I'm asking that you will help me to get a clearer understanding of your word, even as I speak it to your people. And I thank you that you have heard this prayer. And I trust that you have answered it for I ask it in Jesus name. Amen. I would like to invite you to turn your Bible to the book of Revelation, the 13th chapter. We are going to Revelation, the 13th chapter, and we are going to read verses 1 to 3, and then we are going to read verses 11 to 17. And when you get there, just let me know by saying amen. The Bible says in Revelation 13, starting at verse 1, and if you're there, please say amen. amen. 
And what I will do is I'll read verse 1 and you'll read verse 2 and then I'll read verse 3. And then you will pick up again in verse 11 and we will take it down to verse 17 interchangeably. So the Bible says in Revelation 13 and verse 1, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed. And how much of the world? All. It says, all the world wondered after the beast. Verse 11. And he exercises all the power of the first beast before him and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he causes all both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond to receive a mark. In their right hand or in their foreheads, verse 17 together, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. I have entitled our message, Set Your House in Order. Set Your House in Order. In Revelation, the 13th chapter, we have opened before us what is known as prophetic agitations. Prophetic agitations. And though the Bible is replete with many prophetic agitations, the reason why Revelation 13 is very significant to us is because in Revelation 13, the Bible reveals to us what is known as the last act in the drama. It is the very last efforts of Satan in playing the game of life for human beings. He is going to impress upon the hearts of the world at large something that the Bible calls the mark of the beast. Now, God wanted to warn the people. You know, Jesus always believed in warnings. Jesus always believed. That's why one of the words that would come out of Jesus' mouth often is he would say, take heed. And anytime Christ would use those two words, take heed, that was Jesus' way of trying to say, I am warning you, pay attention. So therefore, it is in the manner of Christ that I come to God's people even today. And I am telling God's people, take heed. We need to set our houses in order, brothers and sisters, because we're living in very serious and very solemn times. And the Bible is letting us know that there are things that are taking place and have been taking place for a long time in our world, perhaps even before many of us in this room were born, but it is about to reach its climax. And when it gets to the height of heights of what the prophetic agitations are pointing out to us, there are going to be some very serious ramifications. You just read it. The Bible just said that if any man does not worship the image of the beast and receive his mark, that they'll be killed. It says their buying and their selling privileges will be removed from them. And this is not a fairy tale. This is prophetic truth. And this is why God is not raising up churches just simply to join hands and sing Kumbaya with every other denomination and let them know that Jesus simply loves them. Brothers and sisters, Jesus does love us, and he loves us enough to tell us the truth. Yes. 
because he knows that truth has a very powerful effect. Go to the book of John, the eighth chapter, and let me show you the effect of truth. You see, all of what we're reading in Revelation 13 is simply Satan's last act in the drama to keep God's people in a certain experience. And I want you to see how the Bible brings them both out as we look at John, the eighth chapter. And we're going to look at verses 32 to 34. The Bible says in John, the eighth chapter, and now we're considering verses 32 to 34. And if you're there, please say amen. amen. The Bible says in John eight and verses 32 to 34, it says, and ye shall know the truth and the truth is going to do something. It has an effect. What's the effect? So it makes people free. So notice that truth makes people free. Well, in verse 33, the Jews missed it and they show it here because it says they answered him. We be Abraham's seed and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou ye shall be made free? So Jesus now clarifies the point even more by stating in verse 34, Jesus answered them, verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Brothers and sisters, it's very simple. The mark of the beast is about keeping and securing God's people in sin. That's what the mark of the beast is all about. It's Satan's last effort to secure God's people in sin. So Christ wants to give the message of truth because truth is the only thing that can break the bondage of sin. And this is why truth is imperative in these very last moments of earth's history, not lies. And this is why we learned last night that how many lies are connected to truth? We learned that no lie, 1 John 2 and verse 21, we learn no lie is of the truth. No lie, it doesn't matter if the lie is white, it doesn't matter if it's black. It doesn't matter if it is uh, uh, something that we call innocent or something that we call horrible. There is no lie that is connected to Jesus. All lies are birthed from the heart of Satan. We learned that last night in John 8 and verse 44. Satan is the father of lies. So there's no lie that we can ever tell. And that's why all ministers should come before God's people not to give lies, but to tell the truth. And brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you the truth. I am here to let you know that something very serious is getting ready to take place in our world. And God desires us to receive the truth. Because when we receive the truth, the effect is it makes us free from this last act to keep us in the bondage of sin. And therefore, I believe it is imperative for us to study prophetic agitations. You see, it was in that wonderful little book called Daniel. Go to the book of Daniel chapter 2. It was in Daniel chapter 2 in fundamental Adventism, you know, fundamental uh, prophecy 101, if you will, that Daniel was explaining a vision that Nebuchadnezzar saw. And as Daniel was explaining this vision, I want you to see what the Bible brings out to us because we're going to look at eternity past and then we're going to look at eternity in the future and we're going to see where we are right now. And God is going to help us understand what's going on in our world. And I'm about to show you some startling things. I want to make it as clear as day where we are in prophecy right now, because I believe that the more that we understand that it is going to help motivate us to set our houses in order. The Bible says in Daniel chapter two, it was when Daniel was explaining prophecy and Daniel was explaining unto Nebuchadnezzar this image that he saw. And here it is that the Bible lets us know in Daniel chapter two. And he started to go down this image. And I want you to see what he says in Daniel 2. And we're going to start at verse 37. And if you're there, please say amen. amen. The Bible says in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 37, it says, Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power and strength and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of heaven hath he given into thine hand. 
and hath made thee ruler over them all, thou art this head of gold. It says, and after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over the, all the earth, and the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all kings, and as iron that breaketh all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of part is clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. But there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. Now watch carefully. It says, and whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Here it is that literally the Bible was showing us past, present, and future, all in these few verses that we just read. There was an image that Nebuchadnezzar saw, and in this image, it was made up of several metals. Now, he, Daniel, here in Daniel 2, he's just simply telling us, okay, well, you're the head of gold, but then he, te he, he describes some other elements, but he doesn't really tell us who they are, not in this verse, not in chapter 2. But later on in Daniel 7, later on in Daniel 8, and of course, in Daniel 11, we start to get more clearer pictures of who these kingdoms represent. So therefore, I believe that we should be able to fly through this very well, considering this is Prophecy 101. When we think of the head of gold, what kingdom comes to mind? Babylon. Very good. And then obviously after Babylon, there was the arms and breasts of silver. What did that represent? That represented Medo-Persia. And then, of course, there was the belly and thigh of brass. And what did that represent? That represented Greece. And then, of course, there were the legs of iron. And what did the legs of iron represent? It represented Rome. And then, of course, there were the feet of iron and clay. What did that represent? A hundred percent of the time. A hundred percent of the time. Whenever I go through this simple little chart, it seems as if when I say head of gold, almost in harmony, everybody says Babylon. When I say arms and breath... Medo-Persia, belly and thigh, Greece, legs of iron, Rome, feet of iron and clay. We all of a sudden sound like the mixed multitude. We don't have an understanding of that feet of iron and clay. Brothers and sisters, do you know what that feet of iron and clay represents? And to me, this is very significant because what kingdom comes after the feet of iron and clay? It is God's kingdom. So this means that the feet of iron and clay should be something that we should be seeing agitated right in our day before the Lord comes and sets up his kingdom. Is that right? So it becomes imperative that we properly understand what do the feet of iron and clay represents. You want to know what the feet of iron and clay represents? It represents the combining of church and state. Oh, yes, I love your faces. Oh, I love it. They look at it and say, really, really? Is that true? Yes, it is, brothers and sisters. And it's very simple. If you would think about it, let's highlight the feet of iron and clay. If you look at the feet of iron and clay more closely, what's really the new element in the feet? Is it the iron? No, it's the clay. So remember, so that means that when we think of the iron, we're already looking at Rome, which was a political or state power. Is that right? So Rome was already a state power. So the new element is the clay. The clay 
All we got to do is search the scriptures to find out what does clay represent prophetically in the Bible. And when you look at it, notice the clay, if you were to study Jeremiah 18, 4 through 6, and if you were to study Isaiah 64, verse 8, clay represents church. It represents God's people. So as a result of that, when you see the feet mixed with iron and clay, we are seeing a combining of church and state. So the Bible was prophetically letting you and I know that in the very last moments of earth's history, we are going to once again see the agitations of church and state coming together. And this was to be a harbinger. This was to open our eyes and help us to see where we are in time. Because the more that you understand where you are in time is the more you know exactly what to do. Reason why we have so much confusion both in the world and in the church today is because the world and the church are filled with people that have no idea what time it is. And as a result of that, we do not know exactly what to do. So God wants to wake us up and stimulate us so we can realize it is time to set our houses in order. So therefore, the Bible lets us know these prophetic agitations very, very clearly. Now, brothers and sisters, because of this, one of the things we learn is that obviously Rome is going to play a very strong role in last day events. Is that right? Rome is obviously going to play a very strong role because the iron continues all the way up until the second coming. Now that brings us back to Revelation 13. Turn back there. We're studying. Is that all right? Let's go back to Revelation 13. Now let's look at it more carefully now. Revelation 13. It was in Revelation 13 that John the Revelator He's right there at verse one. And he says, I saw this beast coming up out of the earth, you know, and he had seven heads and ten horns and all these different things. And here it is that this is none other than the description of Rome. And the reason we know it is because in verse two of Revelation 13, first it says he was like a leopard. Now, what did the leopard represent? It represented Greece. And then it had feet like a bear. What did the bear represent? Medo-Persia. And then it had the mouth of a lion. What did the lion represent? Babylon. So think about it. When Daniel was living in the time of Babylon, he is seeing in the future and he's living in the time of the head of gold. He's living in the time of the lion. And then he sees a bear, Medo-Persia. Then he sees a leopard that that was Greece. Then he sees an indescript beast. In other words, the fourth beast was so ugly and so ferocious that God could not find an animal to equate it to. The only thing God could say in Daniel 7, he says it was a great and terrible beast. Now, Daniel's living in the time of Babylon and he's seeing Medo-Persia. He's seeing Greece and he's seeing Rome, future tense. John the Revelator, what time period is he living in? He's living in the time of Rome, the great and terrible beast. So John says, I see this sea beast and he's like a leopard, Greece. Feet of a bear, Medo-Persia. Mouth of a lion, Babylon. So Daniel was looking into the future. John was looking from the past and connecting the prophecy. Are you following so far? So John is looking at Rome. And what did it say in verse three? It said in verse three, and one of his heads were wounded unto death, but his deadly wound would be. And when his wound was healed, what would be the fruit? All the world would wonder after the beast. Now, my question is very simple. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? In other words, do you believe that the deadly wound was healed? You believe the wound was healed, eh? Okay, well then let's look at verse 2. 
In Revelation 13 and verse 2, look at what the Bible says. The Bible says in Revelation 13 and verse 2, and he was like unto a leopard, his feet were as the feet of a bear, his mouth had the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him three things. Now, who's the dragon? The dragon is Satan. You go to Revelation 12 and you look at verses 8 and 9, and the Bible makes it very clear the dragon is Satan. So Satan gave Rome its power. Don't lose that. Oh, don't lose that. Brother, I'm about to show you something. Don't you dare lose that point. So Satan literally gave Rome its power. And when I say Rome, I'm not talking about a country. I'm talking about the Roman Catholic Church. I want you to listen carefully to what I'm saying. I'm talking about the papacy. All right. Now watch this. It says the dragon gave him three things in verse two. Gave him power. What else? Seat. And what else? Great authority. Now, when Rome had power, seat, and great authority, was it a world-dominating power? Yes, it was. Now, watch this. How was Rome a world-dominating power? It had to have two things. What do you think Rome had to have? It had to have the combining of church and state. When Rome was able to combine church and state, it was able to do something. Go to Revelation 12 and look at what it says it was able to do. In Revelation 12, notice what the Bible says right there in verse 13. In Revelation 12 and verse 13, notice what the Bible says Rome was able to do as a result of having power, seat, and great authority. The combining of church and state on its behalf. Look at what it says in Revelation 12 and verse 13. The Bible says in Revelation 12 and verse 13, And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he did what to the woman? It says he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man child. Rome had power to persecute the church. So through the combining of church and state, Rome had the power to persecute the church of God. Now, again, I ask you the question. Prophetically, the Bible definitely says that he suffered a wound and it says that the wound will be healed. But if the wound is healed, look at my arm carefully. This is going to be the sign that I have a healthy arm. The fact that I can do this. Now, here's the question. One day, Dwayne Lemon breaks his arm. What do you think would be the clearest sign that my wound is healed? When I can do this again with it. You understand? You see how sensible you are? Now, watch. When Rome was healthy... It had power, seat, great authority through the combining of church and state. And it became a what kind of power to God's church? A persecuting power. Question, is Rome back at this state yet? No, it is not. Because if it was, you'd know about it. You understand? So the wound has begun its healing process. But the wound is not fully healed. You understand? So when this wound gets healed, there's a doctor that's in the picture. The doctor that's in the picture was Revelation 13, 11. You saw it. It was none other than that second beast. It was the second beast, which is none other than the United States of America. If anybody needs some Bible proofs for that, you see me after the meeting. But the United States of America is going to play a very key role in bringing everybody back to Rome. Look back at verse 12. I want you to think about it. It's a solemn thought to me as an American. To think that the whole prophetic role of the United States of America is to bring everybody back to the papacy. Notice what the Bible says in Revelation 13, right there, verse 11 and 12. Look at it. It's right there. This is it. It says, and I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. 
And he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exercises how much power? All the power of the first beast. Well, wait a minute. If the first beast has power, seat, great authority, and combining of church and state, it says the second beast is now going to be exercising how much power? So that means that the second beast is also going to have power, seat, and great authority, and is going to exercise the combining of what? Church and state. Now watch what it says. It says and exercises all the power of the first beast before him and causeth the earth. The word cause means force and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to do something. What are they going to do? Worship. Worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Can you imagine that? The whole role of the second beast is to bring everybody back to worship the first beast. I want you to think about that, brothers and sisters. That's Solomon. So when I think about prophetically where we are in time, we are at the very closing scenes. You want to know why? Because something very amazing happened last year, just last year, just last year. I'm really fast forwarding past a lot of prophetic agitations because I want to get to some key points. Just last year, a major move took place in Rome. And that move was that all of a sudden, for the first time, we, we haven't seen this before. Here it is that you have a pope. A pope normally stays in office until he dies. But all of a sudden, you know, uh, you know, Pope Ratzinger, some things go wrong with his health. And next thing you know, he steps down and a new man comes up on the scene. His name is Pope Francis. Now, brothers and sisters, when Pope Francis came on the scene, do you realize he took the world by storm? Yes. He took the whole world by storm. Why? Because, brothers and sisters, it was very simple. The first thing they did was they offered him the Pope Mobile. That was one of the first efforts that they made. They said, well, why don't you go ahead and take the Pope Mobile so that way you can, you know, have a way of traveling like all the other popes. Well, he says, no, I don't want that. He says, just let me go ahead and take the bus with the common people. So when he did that, the world was amazed. They were saying, how in the world is it that a pope would take the bus? Because it made two statements. Number one, it showed he was fearless of death. Because there are some people that don't like the pope. And therefore, he knew he was putting his life at risk. But that didn't bother him. But then the second thing is, it also made an incredible statement of humility. It made a powerful statement of humility. People were able to say, my word, look at this. And the reason why I'm pointing these things out is because this is always how prophecy was to be taught. We are to teach prophecy and connect it with current events to make it real. So therefore, this is all that I'm doing. We just went through Revelation 13. We just saw Daniel 2. And the Bible makes it clear. Rome is going to play its part all the way through the end. So now we're looking at the agitations. We're watching the, the efforts of the combining of churches and state coming together. And we just want to see where are we in time. So now here we are. First thing, he humbles himself and says, no, I'll take the bus with everybody else. Well, then the next thing came into the picture. The next thing was they said, well, we're going to go ahead and give you the plush room that all the popes are allowed to have to rest and relax. And he said, no, no, no. He says, let me just get one of a humble little hotel apartment. And when he took that little humble hotel apartment, again, people were amazed. They said, how could it be that this man would take a hotel apartment when he has an opportunity to have the most plush and beautiful rooms that every pope is allowed to have? Do you know popes were more important than kings? Do you know that kings bowed down to popes and popes never bowed down to kings? So here it is. This man is more important than kings and presidents. And here it is. He wants to take a humble little apartment. This was blowing people's minds. So they're looking at it and they're saying, how could this be? And it was funny because when he went to stay in the hotel room, do you know what he went to do? He went to pay for it. He wanted to go ahead and pay for his room. You know, he wanted to be a, 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 a faithful patron. And here it is that when he went to pay for his room, the clerk said, Pope, you don't need to pay for the room. You own the building. 
And here it is that he says, no, 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 no. He says, treat me like a common man. I want to pay for my room just like anybody else. So again, the world is amazed. They're saying, man, look at this man. He is demonstrating such a tremendous point of humility. And then it went even further than that, brothers and sisters, because one day he found himself in a prison house. And when he was in that prison house, he was with a whole bunch of juvenile criminals. And when he went there, he didn't go there to tell them how wicked they were. He went there to wash their feet. He went there to go ahead and do communion on each of them. Now, in the Seventh-day Adventist church, we actually believe in foot washing too. Is that right? Yeah. Amen. We know that foot washing was one of the demonstrations of humility. Is that right? So I want you to notice that he's making a tremendous effort right in the jump, the beginning of his work, to help us see how humble a man he is. Now, the reason why this becomes important to me is because he went further than many of us would. How many of us have ever washed feet? How many of us ever washed someone's feet? You washed a person's feet before? Well, here's my question. After you washed the feet, did you do this? You see, it was after he washed their feet. One by one, he took it up. And he put his lips to their feet. When's the last time you did that at communion? Some of us would say, I would never do that. But here it is that he is so inconsiderate of himself that he says, listen, I don't even care about myself. I want to demonstrate to these young people that I love them. And therefore, he, after he washed their feet, he picked it up and he kissed their feet one by one. Brothers and sisters, the world is taken by storm. They are looking and they are wondering. And they're saying, look at this. I have never seen such humility. Now, the reason why this becomes important is one day I was on an airplane coming from a meeting. And as I was coming from a meeting, I'm just sitting out on my plane and, and I'm praying and I'm saying, Father, what is it about this man? Because what was the thing that stood out most about Pope Francis when he took his office? What's the, what's the, what's the first thing that stood out? He was a Jesuit. First Jesuit Pope. You never heard of that before. First Jesuit Pope. Now, if I ask average individuals today, I'll say, you know, do you know what a Jesuit is? Most people don't even know what a Jesuit is. So here it is that I'm sitting down and I'm thinking to myself, I said, what is it about this position in this office? And here it is that next thing you know, God led my mind to a precious little book. You know what that precious little book is called? It's precious. This precious little book is called Great Controversy. And when I picked up that little book called Great Controversy, God's spirit led me to page 234. And I want you to see what it says. It says in the book, Great Controversy 234, it says throughout Christendom. Now watch these words carefully. Brothers and sisters, time is almost finished. It says throughout Christendom, Protestantism was menaced by formidable foes. It says the first triumphs of the Reformation passed. Rome summoned new forces, hoping to accomplish its destruction. At this time, the order of the Jesuits was created. It says the most cruel, unscrupulous, and powerful of all the champions of popery. So literally, what happened was in our history, the erection of the Jesuit order came into existence for the supreme and sole purpose to crush out Protestantism. I want you to think about that. That was the supreme purpose of the Jesuit order. Crush out Protestantism. Now, watch this. It says next... There was no crime too great for them to commit, no deception too base for them to practice, no disguise too difficult for them to assume. Now watch the description here, saints. It says vow to perpetual poverty and what else? 
So they were vowed to humility. Notice what the end result of the vow was. It says they were vowed to perpetual poverty and humility. It was their studied aim to secure wealth and power to be devoted to the overthrow of Protestantism and the reestablishment of the papal supremacy. So there's a plan that's being worked, brothers and sisters. You see, this is why in the Bible, you will always find that whenever God's people were going through a crisis or coming up to a crisis, you know what God would always do? He would raise up a prophet. God knew that that crisis was coming when the flood was going to come. And God said, I'm going to raise up a prophet called Noah. God knew that a crisis was coming to his people and he wanted to instruct them and show them how to get ready to go through that Babylonian captivity. And God said, I'm going to raise up a prophet by the name of Jeremiah. God would always raise up prophets whenever his people were about to go through a crisis. Brothers and sisters, there's a crisis coming. It's not just a crisis. It's the last act in the drama. It's the final crisis. And you know what God did? God says, I love my people so much that once again, I'm going to be the same yesterday, today and forever. And I'm going to raise up a prophet. And God raised up a prophet. And in the writings of this prophet, we are getting behind the scene pictures. We are able to see what the average mind and the average eye can't see. Woe be unto the Seventh-day Adventist that says they don't want to listen to the prophet. We have no idea what we're saying when we say, oh, get rid of Ellen White. We don't want to hear from her. Brothers and sisters, you're preparing for the mark of the beast. We are told in Third Selected Messages, page 84, know this for a certainty. That those Seventh-day Adventists who will join under Satan's banner will first give up their belief in the testimony of God's spirit. So whenever you hear somebody say, I don't want to hear what Ellen White says and all these other things, you pray for them. Because those individuals are preparing to join under Satan's banner and they don't even see it. Brothers and sisters, it is love that motivated God to give us a prophet. It was love that motivated God to say, I need to give my people behind the scenes information. And we're getting it because the world right now is startled. And I'm going to show you. Watch. We're told all of this is being done. All of this false humility. All of this false pretense of poverty and loneliness. All of it is a trick and a trap and a disguise. So that we don't discern what the trap, the plan is really taking place. Protestantism is about to be overthrown. And brothers and sisters, I'm going to take you just as early as just a week ago. I'm going to bring you that close up to prophecy. I'm going to show you what just happened a week ago to show their plan is in full action. And it's for these reasons that God says, set your house in order. Well, here it is that we're seeing thus far overthrow of Protestantism and the reestablishment of the papal supremacy. Right now, watch this one. When I read this next point here, I lied to you not. My hands trembled in the airplane. My hands literally trembled in the airplane. I said, Lord, have mercy. Because I'm watching all these events that he's doing. And I'm saying, where's all this leading to? And look at what it says next. When appearing as members of their order, they wore a garb of sanctity visiting prisons. Huh? It says visiting prisons and hospitals, ministering to the sick and the poor, professing to have renounced the world and bearing the sacred name of Jesus who went about doing good. But under this blameless exterior, the most criminal and deadly purposes were often concealed. Brothers and sisters, we have to understand we have a prophet in Israel. God wanted us to understand what was happening right now so we can know what to do. So here it is. We're watching all these things. And notice what it says next. It says the Jesuits rapidly spread themselves over Europe and wherever they went, there followed a revival 
of popery. And you know, brothers and sisters, you know why I believe there's a revival of popery going on right now here in America? You want to know why I know for a fact that there's a revival of popery going on right now and that the Jesuits are accomplishing their goal? Is because if there weren't, how do you explain that? Time magazine? Person of the year? Brothers and sisters, the only way you can get your face on Time magazine is you cannot be unimportant. You have to be seriously important. And he became Time magazine's person of the year. Everybody's looking at him and everybody's wondering after him. And they're saying to him, oh, look at how wonderful and how great he is. And here's where it all starts to tie in. He's now person of the year. He has tremendous influence. People look at him and they say he is the Barack Obama of the Roman Catholic Church. When you look at Barack Obama, President Obama, he, he's a man with great charisma. He's a, a man with great tact. He's a wonderful orator. He knows how to speak wonderfully. And all of these different things. He has many skills, talents, and abilities, and he knows how to reach the hearts of every class, from the youth to the adults. He is a people person. You can say what you want to say about him, but it's the truth. He's a people person. He knows how to win hearts. Pope Francis is the same way. He knows how to win hearts. He knows how everybody looked at Pope Ratzinger and Pope Ratzinger had a nickname. His name was God's Rottweiler. That was his nickname. This is not what we're calling him. That was his nickname. Literally, he was known as God's Rottweiler. And he was the one that was very strong and very forthright. And as a result of that, a lot of people could not find relatability with him. But when it came to Pope Francis, they said, man, he's so relatable. He's such a wonderful person. He's such a, a kind, loving man. And here it is that brothers and sisters, once he was able to win and gain the favor of the people. He started setting up his next plan. His next plan involved another man. And this man, Bishop Tony Palmer. Bishop Tony Palmer is a very interesting individual. And you'll see who he is in just a moment. Because Bishop Tony Palmer was an individual who was a very good friend with a major evangelical by the name of Kenneth Copeland. And these individuals are very good friends. They've known each other for over 20 years. And what happened was Bishop Tony Palmer was privileged to come to an evangelical conference filled with Pentecostal and charismatic pastors. And what happened was they all came together and Dr. Copeland said, well, let me go ahead and let Bishop Tony Palmer come with, to fulfill his agenda. Now, Bishop Tony Palmer is not just a good friend of Kenneth Copeland. He is also a very good friend of Pope Francis. And Pope Francis sent him a message that he wanted to give to the world of Christendom. You see, go back to Revelation 13. Look carefully at what the Bible shows. You see, these things in Revelation 13 cannot come to pass except these prophetic harbingers take place first. So notice what the Bible says. In Revelation 13, again, look at verse 12 carefully. It says in Revelation 13 and verse 12, it says, and he exercises all the power of the first beast before him and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to... Worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So we know that this has to be an effort of combining of church and state because the issue of worship is going to be on the table. You understand? So there's going to, so get this out of your head that the mark of the beast is a barcode. It's not a barcode. It cannot be a barcode. Why? Because this is an issue of worship. Worship. It's going to be forced worship. So as a result of that, you and I have to start saying, well, how in the world could they force us to worship when we have religious liberty? Mm -hmm. 
So do you understand what the Bible prophetically is telling us? It's telling us that a time is going to come that enough agitations are going to take place in our world that's going to eliminate our religious liberties. And I'm wondering, how is Satan going to pull it off? I wanted to find out, how is he going to pull it off? How is he going to get, 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 get America to a point that it would begin to relinquish the religious liberties? Well, one of the first things that has to happen is the church has got to unite. The churches have to unite. So when Bishop Tony Palmer was sent by Pope Francis, he was sent on a mission. What was his mission? His mission was to tell everybody Luther's protest is over. And then he asked the question, is yours? He literally came into the scene. And look at the date. He came into the scene. Brothers and sisters, this is just a week or so ago. February, the month that just passed, 2014, this is where this big meeting took place. It was an ecumenical meeting. And he came there together and he said, ladies and gentlemen, he says the Roman Catholic Church no longer believes in salvation by works. We believe the same thing that Luther believes, so they profess. I think they need to read the 95 Thesis all over again. But they profess, oh, we believe in justification by faith, just like Luther did. Therefore, Luther's protest is over. And then he asked, is your protest over? You know what they're trying to do? They're trying to eliminate Protestantism. Wait a minute. What was the reason for the Jesuit order? To crush out Protestantism. He has come on a mission to do just that. And you know what? He must have been working pretty good. You know why? Because after he finished presenting, after he finished presenting and he played the little video clip, he played that video clip right there. This is Pope Francis. He says, I am nostalgic or yearning that this separation, talking about Protestant and Catholics, he says that this separation comes to an end and gives us communion. So this is what he was saying. He says, this is what I want. I want this separation. They are literally calling everybody to become Catholics. You got to watch the video, saints. It's all over YouTube. You can watch it. It is so accessible right now. And when you watch this thing, you just type in YouTube, Kenneth Copeland, you type in Bishop Tony Palmer, this stuff will just pop up. And you can watch the whole thing for yourself. He literally said the protest is over and there's no relevance of the Protestant movement. He says, we are all Catholics. He says, take back what is yours. So this is the message. So uh, literally, we are watching Revelation 13 unfolding right before our very eyes. And God's message is, set your house in order. Set your house in order. It was after this whole presentation, I was wondering. I said, well, I wonder what Brother Copeland is going to say. And notice what he said. He said, heaven is thrilled over this. That was his exact words. Heaven is thrilled over this. So think about it. Do you understand that this man is not a nobody? This man is a major somebody in evangelical Christianity. He's right up there with the T.D. Jakes's and the Joyce Myers and all of the other individuals who make up the big names in evangelical Christianity. And here it is that he said, heaven is thrilled over this. And, you know, when I saw this, think about it. Rome and the apostate Protestants are all coming together. And then all of a sudden God says, do you remember? And I said, oh, yes, I remember, Lord. What did God say? When the leading churches of the United States uniting upon such points of doctrine as are held by them in common shall influence the state to enforce their decrees and to sustain their institutions, then Protestant America will have formed an image of the Roman hierarchy and the infliction of civil penalties upon dissenters will inevitably result. 
Great Controversy 445. So God is literally showing us what is happening, what's unfolding as we're studying Daniel 2, as we're looking at Revelation 13, as we're watching the current events and we're seeing all these things unfold. And this is why we need to understand where is this all leading to? All of this amalgamation, all of this so-called unity, where is all of this leading to? Well, it goes back to an old statement. You see, Rome has not changed. The problem is apostate Protestantism has changed. Or Protestantism has changed into apostate Protestantism. But Rome has not changed. You see, Rome said a long time ago, they said Sunday is our mark of authority. Now, I want you to think about it. Rome is the beast. Sunday is their mark. So we have the mark of the beast. And it says Sunday is our mark of authority. The church is above the Bible. And this transference of Sabbath observance is proof of that fact. And that's why I always respectfully let everybody know. And if there's anybody here under the sound of my voice and you observe Sunday as the Lord's day, you are not following what the Bible says. You are following what Rome says. And maybe therefore you are a Catholic. But God wants to make it clear that you don't have to be. You can be a true Protestant in the spirit of Jesus. And you can say Protestants believe sola scriptura. The Bible and the Bible only is our rule of faith. And there's no way that you can study the Bible and end up observing Sunday as the Lord's day. The Bible makes it very clear in Isaiah 58 that the Sabbath is God's day. That's clear. So therefore, Rome makes it clear. This is our effort. And therefore, when I looked at this, that's why this article didn't surprise me. It was in April 26 of 2013. New York Times. Notice what it stated. Responding to the question, do we need to rediscover the meaning of leisure? Pope Francis replies, together with a culture of work, there must be a culture of leisure as gratification. To put it another way, people who work must take the time to relax, to be with their families, to enjoy themselves, read, listen to music, play a sport. But this is being destroyed in large part by the elimination of the Sabbath rest day. So notice what he's highlighting. He's talking about the importance of leisure, talking about the importance of family time. But he's saying all of it is being eliminated by... The elimination of the Sabbath rest day. Now, do you think he's talking about the seventh day Sabbath Saturday? All right. So what? It says more and more people work on Sundays as a consequence of the competitiveness imposed by a consumer society. In such cases, he concludes work ends up dehumanizing people. So he started to make this case and notice how he closed. He closed by saying last October, about 250 bishops met in Rome for a conference on the movement called the New Evangelization which focuses on reawakening faith in those already baptized. One of their conclusions was, even though there is a tension between the Christian Sunday and the secular Sunday, Sunday needs to be recovered in keeping, they wrote, with John Paul's Dies Domini. John Paul wrote a little letter called Dies Domini in 1998. And in that letter, he said, Christians will naturally strive to make sure that civil legislation respects their duty to keep Sunday holy. In other words, go to legislation, get them to produce a Sunday law so that way we can have our Sundays off. Brothers and sisters, time is almost finished. Set your houses in order. God is trying to show us that all of these things are coming to pass. And the thing that I wondered is I said, how will they get the church and the state to come back together? How will they break down the religious laws? I now see very clearly the agenda of the Church of Rome. I see the agenda connected to the evangelicals, but how are we going to get it where it's going to affect the political realm? And you know the best way that Satan conjured it up? is through that thing right there, gay marriage. 
gay marriage. Brothers and sisters, this was Satan's mastermind plan. Because the question was, how can you infiltrate both religion and civil rights and combine the two? And this subject has done it. This is a worldwide agitation. When I went to Singapore, the agitation was gay marriage. When I went to the Philippines, gay marriage. When I went to Germany, gay marriage. When I went to Africa, gay marriage. Everywhere that I'm going, brothers and sisters, every country, every state, and throughout the United States, this agitation of gay marriage is a very serious issue. Now watch this. Did you know Jesus warned us about it? Go to the book of Matthew 24. Let me show you. Let me show you this. You see, we have to understand all these things are motivating us. They are motivating us. It's a stimulus to see this last act of the drama is getting ready to take place. And Jesus wants us to understand it's time to set our houses in order. In Matthew, the 24th chapter. And when you get there, say amen. amen. The Bible says in Matthew 24, right there in verse 37. You remember Matthew 24, 37. Jesus made it very clear. He said, but as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So the Bible makes it very clear that in the last days, it's going to be like the days of Noah. Is that right? Now watch verse 38. Notice what he highlights. In verse 38, it says, for as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So notice that Jesus highlights what of the days of Noah will be seen in the last days. One of them was eating and drinking. The other was marrying and giving in marriage. Now, brothers and sisters, I have the privilege this May 25th of this year, I will have the privilege of being married from my bride from my side for 17 years. And I am not ashamed of that. I am very, very thankful for that. You understand? And you should be thankful too. Amen. So therefore, Jesus is not against marriage. Marriage is an institution that was made before sin touched this planet. So therefore, marriage is holy. Marriage is beautiful. And God is the author thereof. So we know that Christ does not hate marriage. Jesus was the one that gave us food. So certainly there would be no sin in eating and drinking. So what really is the issue? Genesis chapter six. Go there. In Genesis, the sixth chapter, let's find out what the real issue is. In Genesis, the sixth chapter, notice what the Bible says here. And you can find out exactly what the issue is. In Genesis, the sixth chapter, we are now going to put some context to this eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. And of course, I want to highlight marriage for the context of our subject. So here it is that in Genesis 6, notice what the Bible says in verses 11 and 12. And if you're there, say amen. amen. The Bible says in Genesis 6, 11 and 12, it says the earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. Now watch verse 12. And God looked upon the earth. And behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. So now we're getting context to Jesus's warning. When Jesus said that as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the son of man. They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. It was not an issue about simply eating food or simply entering into marriage. But the problem was, is that they were eating and drinking in a corrupt manner and they were marrying and giving marriage in a corrupt manner. And brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but when I think about a man marrying a man, and when I think about a woman marrying a woman, brothers and sisters, that is marriage corrupted. And as a result of that, it becomes a harbinger that lets us know 
Time is almost finished. It was Jesus himself who made it very clear. He said in Mark 10, 6 and 7, but from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. The Bible is clear. And this is why, brothers and sisters, that when we start watching men and men and women and women and all these things. Now, let me put this caveat in there. Because homosexual marriage and homosexual unions are condemned by the word of God, we are not given license to be insulting to our brothers and our sisters. These are blood-bought individuals that Jesus died for, just like anybody else, just like any other sinner. And as a result of that, we are to let those in the gay community know that God loves the sinner, but God hates the sin. We must call sin by its right name. If you love them, tell them the truth, because truth is the only thing that makes people free. So therefore, we have to tell them the truth and say, listen, God cannot approve of this relationship, whether you get married or not. God cannot approve of it, and God can give you victory over it through the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. So we should never find license to start going around calling names. The church, brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. We are condemning ourselves by the very attitudes that we're demonstrating towards those in the gay community. Because we're going around name calling. We're going around putting them down. Now, you don't treat the fornicators that way. But a fornication is just as much a sin as homosexual union. So why are we so accommodating to the fornication community and so mean and nasty and ungodly to the gay community? So therefore, the Lord says, check yourself. God says, check your heart. Because how dare we in the name of Jesus go around and speak a word without tact? Did you know the book Steps to Christ, page 12? It says Jesus never spoke a word without tact. Never spoke a word. Jesus was tactful. In everything that he did. And if we are reflections of the image of Jesus, then we should be tactful when we speak to those even in the gay community. So I got to love my brothers and sisters enough in the gay community to say, listen, God does not endorse these things. Because when you try to go ahead and marry man with man and woman with woman, the Bible is very clear. The Bible says in Romans 1 and verse 27, it says, likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman. Burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. So the Bible makes it very clear. Men burning in passion, men for men, as he would for a woman. God says that this is error. God makes it clear that this is wrong. The Bible speaks more forcefully of it in Leviticus 18. It says in verse 22, thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is an abomination. So the Bible is clear. We got to love the brethren enough in the homosexual community. And I am personally disappointed in those in the homosexual community. I really am. And I, and I wish I had a forum to talk to them. Because when they were ostracized, when it was unpopular to be gay, today it's popular. Today the world applauds you when you come out. Because we're living in the days of Lot. You understand? We're living in the days of Sodom. So the world is applauding people now for coming out. But there was a time that it was an embarrassing thing for somebody to come out and say that they were gay. You know what the homosexual community wanted? They wanted to have their rights respected. And they just wanted to be a part of society. Now that the tables have turned and now that it becomes popular to be gay, now that it's popular to enter into gay marriage, if a Christian dares to say, we believe that this is a sinful practice, 
Oh, we, the gay community says, fire them, get rid of them, persecute them. And all of a sudden, they're becoming persecutors now. Now that they got rights, and you know what they're doing? They don't even realize they're condemning themselves. Heavy judgments are going to fall on many of those in the gay community because now that they got just a little bit of rights, they don't know how to act. And now they want to steal away yours and my right. So here it is that we're, we're surrounded by hypocrisy. We're surrounded by contradiction. All of these things are showing us that time is almost finished. And this is why, brothers and sisters, and I show this with all due respect. Listen to me. I show this because I want us to understand that there is no man that we can trust in this world anymore. I don't care if he's called pastor. I don't care if he's called president. And in many respects, even if they call themselves father, God does not call us to put our trust in men. We love men. We respect men. We help men. We build men up as much as we can. But we put our trust in God. The reason why this is so important is because you know how it is in the black community. Everybody's very happy because we have a black president. And I don't know, maybe some of that has died down now. But we know that that was something pretty amazing. But brothers and sisters, do you know that in 2004, in 2004, it was very interesting. Before he was president, he made a statement about marriage. What I believe is that marriage is between a man and a woman. What I believe in my what? In my faith is that a man and a woman, when they get married, are performing something before God. And it's not simply the two persons who are meeting. So notice that before he was president, he made it very clear his position. He says, I believe marriage is between man and woman. He says, this is according to my faith, and I believe it is before God. Well, obviously, he was eventually elected president. And when he was president in his first term, he did what he did. And the next thing you know, of course, he's, he had to go for re-elections. And right around the time of re-elections, the homosexual marriage agenda was really building up. It was gaining with sweeping force. So what happened? They eventually said, well, President Obama, uh, how do you feel about it? Well, let's notice what happened. Here it is that all of a sudden, May 9th, 2012, it says President Barack Obama on Wednesday announced his support for gay marriage. Now, remember, his reluctancy to it before was based on his faith. It was something before God. So notice that religion played a tremendous role in his influence of his position. You understand? Well, let's notice what happened next. I have to tell you, this is President Obama now. He says, I have to tell you that over the course of several years, as I have talked to friends and family and neighbors, when I think about members of my own staff who are in incredibly committed monogamous relationships, same-sex relationships, who are raising kids together, when I think about those soldiers or airmen or Marines or sailors who are out there fighting on my behalf and yet feel constrained even now that Don't Ask, Don't Tell is gone because they are not able to commit themselves in a marriage, at a certain point, I've just concluded that for me personally, it is important for me to go ahead and affirm that I think same-sex couples should be able to get married. Now, notice there's no reference of God. There's no reference of the Bible. There's no reference of his faith. Everything is based on his relationships with the people. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm sorry. And I say this with all due respect. You can be intelligent. You can be charismatic. And you can be many, many things. But when you allow people to sway you from your stand with God, you are not a trustworthy man. You are not a trustworthy man. When you allow the influence of people to literally remove and relinquish your religious professions... Whether you're a pastor or a president, you are not trustworthy. You cannot be trusted with the flock, and you cannot be trusted with leadership over the country. So as a result of this, this became very disappointing. 
But where was it leading to? You see, all of it leads to something. I'm trying to show you, it's all leading to something. So then next thing you know, of course, President Obama, you know, he's, he's going to be off the scene. And um, we know that he will not be able to run another term. So somebody else is going to have to run up. Now, right now, in a time of equal rights and all these other things, who is poised to be the next president? Miss Hillary Clinton. The world has already accepted its first black president. It won't be a problem to accept its first female president. And she's very poised for it because she came close to it last time. So notice this. So notice what she stated right from the jump. Brothers and sisters, it's all connected. She made it very clear. MSN, March 18th, 2013. I support marriage for lesbian and gay couples, Clinton said in the video. I support it personally and as a matter of policy and law, embedded in a broader effort to advance equality and opportunity for LGBT Americans and for all Americans. She made it very clear. She stated, she continues, like so many others, my views have been shaped over time by people I have known and loved by my experience representing our nation on the world stage, my devotion to law and human rights, and the guiding principles of my faith. Not the guiding teachings, but the guiding principles, the principles of love. She's a Methodist. So notice that, again, she makes it clear, I support it as well. President supports it. President soon to come supports it. And then eventually, you know how it is. They had to come to the man who's stronger than all presidents and kings. And they came to Pope Francis. And they said, Pope Francis, what do you say? And Pope Francis, let me tell you something. He's a very smart man. Because look at his wise answer. If a person is gay and seeks God and has goodwill, who am I to judge him? That's pretty slick. And the reason why it was slick was because he didn't say he supports it or not support it. So he can hold, but he knows I got to win the people. So he knows what everybody's going to think of his inference. They're going to say he's inferring that it's okay. To the point that they began to ask him, did you mean this just about the priests in the church? And notice his answer. This was New York Times, September 19th, 2013. I deliberately put the source and the dates because I want you to study it. I want you to archive it the way I archived it because we're all supposed to be students of prophecy. So notice, it says, at the time, some questioned whether he was referring only to gays in the priesthood. But in this interview, he made clear that he had been speaking of gay men and lesbians in general. Now, the reason why this became very important to me is because watching the gay marriage agenda, I wondered how will it affect our civil rights? And it is now penetrating our civil and religious rights. How do we know that? It was right here. You know that picture. How could you not know that picture? That picture has been all over the news over the past week. This was none other than, bear with me, this was Arizona, CNN, February 26, 2014. That's just this week that just passed. What did it show? Arizona Governor Jan Brewer vetoed a bill Wednesday that would have allowed businesses that asserted their religious beliefs the right to deny service to gay and lesbian customers. She vetoed it. Now, here's what I thought was interesting. Let's say you run a cake industry. Well, in your cake industry, more than likely, you make wedding cakes. So how would you feel as a child of God when somebody comes in and they say, well, we don't want a man and a woman on top of the cake. We would like for you to please put two men on the top of the cake. <laughs> the question is, what would you do? And this is what has now affected what is going on in our society. 
is now individuals are literally getting to the point where now our religious beliefs, brothers and sisters, are beginning to become compromised because of a civil agitation. So gay marriage is becoming the, the impetus. Gay marriage is becoming the very foundation, the springboard that's helping to knock down our religious rights. And slowly but surely, and you'll see, this is not going to go away for a long time. This is going to be right in front of us for quite some time. Now, what's the point of all of this? We're watching all of these things take place. The greatest leaders are turning their backs on Bible truths that they once professed. Well, this is nothing new. You see, the Bible taught us a long time ago. There was a man by the name of Pilate. Jesus was brought to Pilate. And when Jesus was brought to Pilate, the question was asked, why do you want me to condemn this man? Because Pilate himself knew that he was innocent. But you know what Pilate did? Pilate ended up condemning Jesus, didn't he? The question is why? And the Bible is very simple. The Bible says in Mark 15, 15, and so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. It was to win the favor of the people that Pilate turned his back on Jesus and allowed him to be crucified. To win the favor of the people. And so it is that we're told in the Bible, history repeats itself. The Bible teaches the thing that hath been is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. So therefore, when we see all of these things happening, why? Again, great controversy. Political corruption is destroying love of justice and regard for truth. And even in free America, rulers and legislators, in order to secure public favor, will yield to the popular demand for a law enforcing Sunday observance. Liberty of conscience, which has caused so great a sacrifice, will no longer be respected. Great Controversy 592. So God is showing us where all of these things are leading, brothers and sisters. And it is as a result of this that God says, set your house in order. You know where you begin setting your house in order? The same way God had to get Adam's house in order. Go to the book of Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, how did God tell Adam to get his house in order? It was when sin came into this world that Adam's house went out of order. Eve was the first instrument used, but Adam ultimately was the party that joined. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3 that when God came, God came to help get them back in order. And God had to start with dialogue. And the question is, who did God go to first? The Bible says in Genesis 3 and verse 9, it says, And the Lord God called unto Adam and said, Unto him, where art thou? What happened? Brothers and sisters, it wasn't that God did not know what went down. God was talking to Adam to say, Adam, what happened in your experience with me? Adam, I set you up as the leader of your house. Adam, I do understand that Eve fell. And God says, I will deal with Eve. But God says, Adam, I am holding you primarily accountable. God says, I appointed you as the head of your home, Adam. And God now looks at him and he says, Adam, where are you? Where are you in your experience with me? What happened, Adam? And it was not that he wanted to be informed. He wanted to make sure that Adam was well informed. 
You see, when we talk about setting our houses in order, we cannot set our houses in order until the heads get it right first. Because that's God's order. And therefore, God comes to Adam and he says, where art thou? What is happening, brothers and sisters? If we're going to set our houses in order, then that means that God has a very special message to his men. And it is God's call to every man to become once again what we once were as it relates to our homes. We must understand that when God raised up the man, that God used him as the symbol to be the representative of himself unto the world. And it was not that he did it to the neglect of the woman, because we know a woman can certainly represent God as well. But God is a head over the church. And when God raised up the husband, God raised him to be the head over the household. So the husband was supposed to be a very direct reflection of God, yea, godliness. So when we think of setting our homes in order, we cannot help but understanding that the first call of God unto his men, knowing now more clearly that time is almost finished, God says that once again, I am calling my men to once again become priests. God says he needs to reestablish the priesthood in the home. And when we think of the priesthood, brothers and sisters, I want you to turn to Hebrews, the fifth chapter. In Hebrews, the fifth chapter, I want you to see what the Bible says as we consider the priesthood. Because this is the first phase of what God wants to reinstitute in the setting of our homes back in order. The Bible says in Hebrews, the fifth chapter. And when you get there, you let me know by saying amen. In Hebrews chapter five, notice what the Bible says as we consider verses one and two. The Bible says in Hebrews five, one and two, for every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both what gifts and sacrifices for sins who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way for that he himself also is compassed with infirmities. So when God raised up the priest, the role of the priest was that he would offer gifts and sacrifices on behalf of those who have fallen into sin. And when he did it, he would do it with a demonstration of compassion. This was a sign of the leadership of the priesthood when Jesus set it up. And we get a beautiful example of this in the book of Job. So let's go to the book of Job chapter one. It was in Job, the first chapter that we get a beautiful picture of this very fact of this priesthood being enacted in the life of Job in his home. We must understand that like never before, because right now there's a lot of foolishness that's taking place in many homes that needs to be uprooted. We need to get victory over it. We need Jesus to come in and to dissolve the negative elements and infuse us with the fire of his love and power of his Holy Spirit. We must come back to managing and getting our homes in the order of Christ. And this cannot happen until first God gets his men back on his team. And as a result of that, the Bible says in the book of Job chapter one, and notice what the Bible says in Job one, and we're looking at verses one to five. I will read verse one, you read verse two, and then we'll take it down to verse five. The Bible says there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels, and 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 she-asses, and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. And 
And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up when? Early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And thus did Job how often? Continually. Brothers and sisters, brothers specifically, we need to come back to the priesthood. God has called men to get their houses in order. God has called us. Our wives look to us. They look to us for strength. They look to us for that wherewithal and that manhood that only can be demonstrated by a man who's connected to the man, Christ Jesus. And as a result of that, we are to demonstrate that holy bearing in our homes to keep everything in order so that way our home can be considered a sanctuary because that's where priests belong. So if priests are to be set up in the home, then by default, that means the home should be a sanctuary because that's where priests operate. So when you think of the priesthood, we're told the father is in one sense the priest of the household, laying upon the altar of God the morning and evening sacrifice. Now, that's the first lesson right there. Brothers and sisters, brothers, if you and I know that we are in a home and there is no morning worship and there is no evening worship, that's your first work. It is literally that simple. The getting of our house in order is not being so busy chasing dollars to try to pay a mortgage. Most of us are living just to make money to service debt. That's not even life. Hustling to make all this money just so at the end we're just paying debts. That's not even life, brothers and sisters. I've decided that I'm avoiding debt like the plague. Because there's more to life than being in debt. And we will find that our chasing of the dollars compromises our ability to get up every morning and to make sure that every evening that we gather the family together and have worship. Sometimes my family and I, we're on the road. And even when we're on the road, we have to understand, look, that does not excuse us from having worship. So therefore, if we're on the road early in the morning or if we're on the road and it's the evening and we know by the time we arrive to our destination, it'll be too late more than likely because everybody will be too tired. Then that means, you know what, everybody? Get your books out. Get your Bibles out. Let's have a word of prayer and let's start singing. And we go ahead and we have that morning and evening worship. And we must make sure that we do not allow anything. This is a non-negotiable. That's your first word. If brothers, you understand what I'm saying. And if you're willing to cooperate with Jesus, let me hear the brothers say amen. amen. So therefore, notice it says the wife and children should be encouraged to unite in this offering and also to engage in the song of praise. Morning and evening, the father as priest of the household, should confess to God the sins committed by himself and his children through the day. Those sins which have come to his knowledge and also those which are secret, of which God's eye alone has taken cognizance, should be confessed. This rule of action, zealously carried out by the father when he is present or by the mother when he is absent, will result in blessings to the family. So therefore, mothers, if for some reason daddy has to get up so early in the morning that as a result of that, he's not able to be there, then mother, you pick up where daddy left off. Only in those cases where there is just no opportunity for father to be present. If father is away, the mother should not say, oh, good, Whew, we, we get a break. <laughs> there is no break, brothers and sisters. Because let me tell you something. We are coming upon a time where all of us are going to come face to face with our professions. This final crisis of the Sunday law, when it tests us, it is only going to reveal what's been happening in us. 
And that's why I like the equation of the Sunday law being like a sponge. And it's a squeeze. All that's going to happen is when the Sunday law test comes to us, it's just going to squeeze us. And you know what happens when you squeeze a sponge. Whatever's in the sponge is going to come out. So if you and I have been practicing fake religion, day by day, week by week, and month by month, if we've been practicing fake religion, then when the Sunday law test comes to us and squeezes us, all that's going to come out is fake religion. You understand? And because there's no genuine love for Jesus, if we're threatened with murder, because remember, the Bible says whoever does not receive the mark shall be killed. If they threaten us and say, we'll take away your visa, your MasterCard, we'll freeze your bank accounts, you won't be able to do what you normally do. If they freeze that stuff, if you don't have a love for Jesus, brothers and sisters, that lack of love will be revealed when the Sunday law test comes. So this is why now we must come to know God as it is our privilege to know him. This is why where's the best place to get to know God in the home. So therefore, the Lord says, listen, set your house in order. I want my men to again become priests. I want you to make sure. And this is whether you have children or not. Sometimes we think, oh, well, just because I don't have any children, well, I'll just go ahead and just do my thing. And my wife does her thing. No, the husband and wife still have to come together for worship. Got to come together for worship because you're building and strengthening each other. Because we got to develop a love. We must cultivate a love for Christ. And if the husband is not there, whether he died, whether he ran away or whether he's away sick or whatever the case may be, mothers pick up where he left off. And you go ahead, whether he is absent, then you make sure you pick up where he left off and you carry that torch. But we must get back to making sure that there is a priesthood in our homes. So phase one, God says, if you're going to set your house in order, God says, I begin the order with the men. And therefore, God says, I am calling my men to once again become priests in their home. I want them to be intercessors. And when people fall, brothers and sisters, did you notice what it said in, in Hebrews 5 two? It says that they were compassionate, compassionate. That means that priests were not supposed to be busy judging and condemning everybody. But they were compassionate. So, gentlemen, you have to start thinking, am I compassionate towards my wife? Am I compassionate towards my children when they mess up or am I quick to drop the gauntlet? Am I quick to drop the hammer on them? Am I quick to let them know how wicked and sinful and messed up they are? And here you go. You messed up again and again and again. And if we're constantly dropping that gauntlet on them, we are not functioning in the priestly order of Jesus. Jesus was such a priest that the Bible says that he was moved and touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He understood weakness. He understood challenges and he understood second chances. You and I must make sure that our household is not a household of grudges. We must make sure that our household and our homes never become a place where we begin to use our past experiences as a weapon. So often we do that to each other. So often husband says, I remember when you messed up. I remember when you did it the last time. You just did it again, didn't you? Look at you. I remember when you met brothers and sisters. That's not demonstrating compassion. Love does not remind us of wrongdoings and love certainly does not rejoice in evil. So we are to understand that in being a priest, it is not just simply to intercess and pray. It is to remember to be compassionate to those in the household when they fall, when they mess up. While we may rebuke and rebuking is all right when it's done in the spirit of Christ. But with every wound, there's healing. And we must make sure that we do these things in the balance of Jesus. If you understand what I'm saying thus far, let me hear you say amen. amen. So therefore, not only are we going to be the priest, we're going to start remembering now. We're going to bring Jesus with Jesus in the family. Happy, happy home. Amen. 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 Next, the lawmaker, Deuteronomy 6. 
Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter. We're setting our houses in order. If we're going to set our houses in order, the man must once again become a priest. But if we're also going to set our houses in order, he must also become a lawmaker. The Bible says in Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter. And when you get there, say amen. amen. One day I was doing a study on the evils of long sermons. And that's a chapter in the book, Testimonies of Ministers and Gospel Workers. Watch this. <laughs> amen. But watch this. I know my sermon is not long. Can I tell you why? Because I, I tested it according to the writer. Did you know that when you carefully study the subject, the evils of long sermons in Ellen White's writings and testimonies to ministers and gospel workers, do you know what a long sermon was? A sermon that went over an hour and 40 minutes. So we're only at an hour and 15. <laughs> so notice what the Bible says in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. In Deuteronomy the 6th chapter, in Deuteronomy the 6th chapter, Notice what the Bible says. Now, we'll read verses 1 to 12. And if you're there, please say amen. amen. All right. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 to 12, the Bible says, starting at verse 1, Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments, which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you go to possess it. You're doing verse 2. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Now, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house, and on thy gates. Houses full of all good things which thou fillest not, and wells digged which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not, and when thou shalt have eaten and be full. So notice that God was giving his commandments. He gave his law. And when he gave it, he gave it to parents because you'll notice the context of the verse. It says after he gave it to the parents, he says, then thou shalt teach it to thy sons. You understand? So God was giving his law to the parents. And then as he gave his law to the parents. Now, the only thing is you have to understand God was especially speaking to the men. So once again, God was giving the law to the men as the men received the law. Then God says, teach it to your sons. And God says, and I want my laws to be upon the posts of your house. I want it to be upon your gates. I want it to be that theme when you rise up. I want it to be that theme when you go back down to bed. I want it to be that theme when you go throughout the day. Is the law of God the theme in your household? Is the law of God the theme in everything that you and I do? Now, brothers and sisters, there's a way you can do this. Go to Psalm 119. In Psalm 119.96, notice how you can do this. Because we can definitely allow 
um, the law of God to be the theme in everything that we do if we do it right. So notice what the Bible says in Psalm 119. In Psalm 119, notice what the Bible says as we consider verse 96. Psalm 119, 96. And when you get there, just say amen. amen. The Bible says in Psalm 119, 96, it says, I have seen an end of all perfection, for all thy commandments are exceeding what? Broad. God's commandments are deeper than what they appear. So when we set up laws in our house, I'll give you one example. In the Bible, the Bible makes it very clear that one of God's laws, one of God's commandments is thou shalt not commit adultery. Is that right? Yes. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, you remember in Matthew 5, Jesus says, but when you look upon a woman to lust after her, you have already committed adultery with her already in your heart. Matthew 5, 28, 28, 29. Well, here's where it gets interesting. If God will condemn a man that looks at a woman lustfully, would not God condemn the woman that dresses in a manner that causes men to look at her lustfully? So therefore, that means that a law that can be instituted in the home is that everyone must practice proper manner of dress. That becomes a law that we can set in our home that we're going to have a dress code. We're going to make sure that we never allow our children to simply go out of our houses looking certain ways. So we're going to make sure that they always dress in manners that do not promote lust. Can you, see, can you see how, as a husband, God has called us to be the lawmaker? So what we got to do is we're not going to make up our own laws. The book of James tells us there's only one lawgiver. That's God. So man is not making up laws. He's taking God's laws and making it practical. So what we're going to do is we're going to take, as men of our household, we're going to take the law of God, and we're going to now make it practical in our homes. So the seventh commandment, as an example, we're going to make sure that in our home, we want to make sure that we always practice proper Christian adornment. Because that connects back to the seventh commandment. You understand? Amen. The Bible refers to jewelry often as gods. The Bible says thou shalt have no other gods. So when I make sure that we practice proper Christian dress in our home, we're going to make sure that we have no false adornments. You understand? Yes. Can the church still say amen? amen? Can you still say amen if it included wedding bands? Amen. Brothers and sisters, a wedding band is just as much jewelry as any other ring. And I'm telling you right now, you're going to do a disservice because if there's one thing that happens in our homes that our children often see is inconsistency. A mother and father cannot tell their children not to wear earrings or neck chains or bracelets if they're going to go ahead donning their wedding bands. Because in the Bible, all of it is condemned, including the wedding ring. So you can't go around telling everybody, well, you know, it's all right for me to wear my wedding ring because my wedding ring represents my marriage. Somebody says, well, my college ring represents eight years of toiling in medical school. <laughs> and some people have college rings have lasted longer than some people's marriages. Yes. So we don't want to use these futile arguments. If you're going to be consistent, be consistent. So we take these words of God and we take these laws of God and we allow it to become something that is lovingly enforced in the home. So watch this. It says, all members of the family center in the father. Did you know that? We often say the mother, but no, it's not true. Inspiration says it centers in the father. It says, all members of the family center in the father. He is the lawmaker, illustrating in his own manly bearing the sterner virtues. That's why it is expected that the husband is the stronger one. It is expected that he's the one that is to lay down the law and then make sure it is abided by. 
Again, not in a ruling cavemanish attitude, but lovingly enforced. So therefore, sterner virtues, energy, integrity, honesty, patience, courage, diligence, and practical usefulness. Oh, husbands. Oh, husbands. Do you know, gentlemen, it is our life work? To all you single people in here, I really hope you're paying attention to this because you're going to have to ask yourself, you still want to get married? Because young people, you know, young brothers, oh, she's so pretty. Oh, I just can't wait. I can't hold my lines very longer. So let me just let me just get married. And we don't understand that it goes well beyond your loins. You got to make sure. You got to make sure that you don't invite a curse in your life by getting married just because you can't control yourself. This is what it means to be a husband. You got to be a priest. You got to be a lawmaker. And look at all of what it requires. You must know what it is to exemplify sterner virtues, what it is to exemplify Christian energy, Christian integrity, to make sure that you are honest at all times, to demonstrate the highest levels of patience, highest levels of patience. Then it says courage. That means you got to know how to be a man. The greatest one in the world is the want of men, men who will not be bought or sold, men who in their inmost souls are true and honest. Men who do not fear to call sin by its right name. Men whose conscience is as true to duty as the needle to the pole. Men who will stand for the right, though the heavens fall. Education, page 57. Brothers and sisters, that's the kind of men that we need. You got to have courage. You got to know how to stand even if it means you got to disagree with your bride. You got to know how to stand. And again, lovingly, never, ever, ever did God do one discipline to the church without love. And we must be the same. Brothers and sisters, we got to make sure that love is the foundation of everything that we do. Can the church say amen? amen. So therefore, practical usefulness. Then it goes on. All of that's from Adventist Home 2.12. It says the father represents the divine lawgiver in his family. You see? That's what I told you. I said the father represents God in his family. It says he is a laborer together with God, carrying out the gracious designs of God and establishing in his children upright principles, enabling them to form pure and virtuous characters because he has preoccupied the soul with that which will enable his children to render obedience not only to their earthly parent, but also to their heavenly father. That means that to be a husband and to be a father requires involvement in the life of your children. We cannot be around our children. We must be involved in the lives of our children. And you will find that if parents, if fathers are more involved in the lives of their children, this becomes the greatest protection from them going out and going astray into the world. Because the world will always put up false pictures to say, we love you. We care for you. The gangs will try to get your young men. Come on, man. We love you. We'll show you what love is. All these gentlemen who are absolutely unworthy of our daughter's love will go ahead and give their false concepts of love just to try to win her, just so they can steal their virginity. But we can protect them when we give our daughters a picture of what a real man is. You give your daughter a picture of what a real man, a real husband is, a real father. And that daughter begins to set that ideal. And when all these clowns come around, she'll be able to say, oh, no, no, no. You don't even halfway qualify because the standard is high. You understand? So this is what God wanted us to do in being the lawmakers and the law and representing the lawgiver. We were supposed to demonstrate Christ likeness in the home. Our final phase. Our final phase. The head of the household, Ephesians 5. We're in Ephesians 5 and verse 23. We're in our final stage now. I'm getting close to my time of running out. 
So Ephesians 5, and let's notice what the Bible says. In Ephesians 5 and verse 23, the Bible makes it very clear. Very clear. In Ephesians 5 and verse 23, notice what the Bible says, and if you're there, just say amen. amen. The Bible says in Ephesians 5 and verse 23, it says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. To be the head of the church is to be the savior of the body. That's parallelism in Hebrews 5. So to be the head of the household is to be the savior of the household. And to be the savior of the household means to be the protector. So that husbands, we have to understand we have to protect our households. We have to make sure that we don't allow any old thing to come in, even in the name of entertainment. There are some video games and certain things that have entered our households that need to go. We have allowed an enemy to come in our homes. We have allowed certain things to preoccupy our children and occupy their minds. And as a result of that, our children are learning how to become professionals at vice through video games. So therefore, you got to look at that video game and say, does it pass the Bible test? The Bible says whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever is lovely, whatsoever is of good report. If, if, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things, Philippians 4 and verse 8. So you got to go home. And I had to do that. I had to do that as a parent. I had to go home and realize that there were certain things I allowed in my house that got to go. And we went to our children. I would go ahead and first call my wife. We'll have consultation on it. We'll come into agreement and then say, all right, we got to present it to the children. And I would go to the children and let them know, daddy made a mistake. Daddy made a mistake. It was because I loved you and I wanted you to be happy that I got this for you, thinking it would bring you happiness. But God has educated me from his words. And now that I understand the words of God better, I now see that the very thing I gave to you that I thought would help you is actually going to hurt you. So you know what? I'm going to need to take it away. And the reason I'm taking it away is because I love you. Not because I want to punish you, because I love you. But I've learned, whenever you take away, find a holy replacement. Find something better. So we used to let our children watch VeggieTales. One day I was watching, and my children were watching VeggieTales, and I walked past the screen, and I, and I saw the cucumber talking. I lied to you. I love the way the Spirit of God works. I literally walked across the screen, saw the cucumber talking. I was like, that's cute. And I just said, that's cute. That's funny. And the next thing you know, a voice came in my head, whatsoever things are true. And I was like, hmm, whatsoever things are true. Can cucumbers talk? Is that true? No. Can asparagus talk? Nope. Can tomatoes talk? Nope. Do you know that all, do you know that almost 100% of children's programs are based on things that's not real? Dora the Explorer and talking backpacks. Blues clues, talking blue dog. Ants, the movie Ants when it came out, talking ants. Lion King, talking lions. You can name the pro Toy Story, talking toys. Think about it. Everything is based on the artificial. Why? Because Satan says because that's the foundation of spiritualism. So he's bringing spiritualism in our homes through the mediums of video games, veggie tales, and all these other so-called things that are not even real. So I started looking at it. I said, whatsoever things are true. This is not true. So next thing, the Lord paused me on it, and I started to look at it, and I said, we got to take this away. And we took that away, and we gave them Janice's Attic in replacement. Janice's Attic, brothers and sisters, is a beautiful program. Used to be on 3ABN. It's not on there anymore, but it used to be. And Janice's Attic, it was wonderful. Real people, real children, children learning the health message, children learning righteousness by faith. 
children understanding dress reform and health reform and all the different beautiful teachings of the gospel. This was something that we said. So while we took away the veggie tales and they were like, oh, dad, we said, no, 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 no. We got something better. We said, we're going to pop in Janice's attic. And my children just like, oh, hey, this is pretty good. And next thing you know, you could say veggie tales and they said, veggie what? They didn't even remember it anymore. Because now they found something better. So while we take away, as the head of the household, we protect our households. We got to protect it. See, being a head is not being a caveman. It's about protecting the household, even at the peril of your own life. That's the kind of love that we must demonstrate, because that's what Christ demonstrated to the family. I made sure, when I left that corporate industry, making over $200,000 a year, and God calls me into ministry, I said, Lord, have mercy. Father, how are we going to live? And I had to learn principles, and God taught me so many things as it relates to business and understanding because I understood I have been put in charge to take care of this household. My wife homeschools our four children, and I said, and that is all that I want you to focus on. I said, you focus on making sure that they get what they need to get, and I will interchange with you at times, but I am the one that's responsible for making sure the income comes in the home and the this, that, and the other. And brothers and sisters, I'm telling you the truth. I wanted to make sure we protect our household. I need to make sure that there's always going to be a home there for my family to be able to sleep. I got to make sure that there's always going to be food on the table. I got to make sure. And these are things that we do to protect our households. Can't just let any influence. There's some children that I can't let my children be friends with. Because I'm a head of a household. So I got to love those other children enough to say, I'm sorry, but, uh, you know, you're going to need to go sit with your mother and father. We need to keep our children here. Because there's some children that have unfortunately had very negative influence. Sometimes we lose our children through something called associations. But when you're the head of a household, you got to protect. You understand? And you got to make sure that you protect the experience of love. Protect that experience of joy and happiness in your home. And therefore, at the head of the household, the husband and father is the head of the household. The wife looks to him for love and sympathy and for aid in training of the children. We must avail ourselves, gentlemen. We must avail ourselves. When we come home, they're looking for love. They're looking for sympathy. They are looking for help with the children. And we have to make sure that we can't come home saying, look, girl, I'm too busy. I just came back from a hard day at work. And we bring our burdens from work in the home. We are specifically told we should not do that. So therefore, we got to get that wherewithal with Jesus to go in and do what God says. It says, and this is right. The children are his as well as hers. And he is equally interested in their welfare. The children look to the father for support and guidance. He needs to have a right conception of life and of the influences and associations that should surround his family. Above all, he should be controlled by the love and fear of God and by the teaching of his word that he may guide the feet of his children in the right way. Adventist home, page 211. We should understand that the father should do his part toward making home happy. Whatever his cares and business perplexities, they should not be permitted to overshadow his family. He should enter his home with smiles and pleasant words. Brothers and sisters, we have reached the conclusion of our presentation. God wanted us to understand that time is almost finished. God wanted us to understand that the majority of our homes are not like this. The majority of our homes do not have enough priests, lawmakers, and heads. But this is exactly what God wants for our homes, that our houses may be set in order. And how much the more seeing that the day is approaching. 
seeing that time is almost finished, seeing that everything is getting ready to wrap up. God says, don't delay any longer. If you today, if you're hearing my voice, don't harden your heart. God says, I know that hell is on its way. This crisis, brothers and sisters, is going to be more fierce than anything humanity has ever faced. But God says, did you know that hell has never overtaken heaven? Did you know that? Hell tried to exalt in heaven, didn't it? Hell tried to exalt itself in heaven. Satan came in there and Satan was in heaven and he was trying to exalt and do his thing. But the Bible says he was cast out. Heaven prevailed over hell. But no, no, no. Do you, the question is, do you get it? Heaven prevailed over hell. But watch this. I was reading a little book called Adventist Home. And when I was reading Adventist Home, you know what God said about every household, about every family? It says that every household was designed to be a little heaven on earth. You see, if you have heaven in your home, then when hell comes, it will not be able to prevail. So even when the test comes and it comes to us, that our homes will be so filled with the love of Jesus. Our homes will be so filled with the love of God. Christ and Christ alone will be that which is exalted in our home. God and his law and his truth will be that which is on our doorpost. It is that which we talk about when we rise. It is that when we go down to bed. It is that which when we go throughout the day. And as a result of Christ in us, in our homes, when hell comes to our home, hell will not be able to prevail against heaven. And as families, we'll be able to stand though the heavens may fall. I want you to consider your home. Consider the weaknesses. I believe there's a, a couple here who's, who's just getting started. Is that right? I, you know, if I understood it correctly, the elder says somebody just got married. Who, who just got married? I didn't see it. It's just got, amen. All right, brother. All right. You have an awesome assignment. And let me tell you something. After 17 years, man, it gets sweeter as the days go by. And so I'm not here to put any curses on you. I've heard people say stuff. Oh, the first seven years will be tough. Oh, the first year, this, that, and the other. I say, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. I don't need that stuff. Life is tough. I understand that. But what, what we need to, is to encourage each other. Is that right? God promises your household. You be that house band. You be that queen of the household. Whew. Heaven on earth. Heaven on earth. And hell can't prevail over heaven. Hell can't prevail over heaven. But there's a lot of us here who says, you know what? I have hell. Mm. A lot of us here to say, I have hell right now. I have hell. But I want heaven. You know, God can give you heaven. Even if you're married to an unbeliever, God can give you heaven. It is in chapter 57 of Adventist Home that we are told how to deal with an unbelieving spouse. We're told that when you have an unbelieving spouse, that you give him or you give her heaven. And the more that you give them heaven, hopefully heaven will become so contagious that they'll be able to say, I want what you have. It's a story of a man who was of a different religion. And his wife was hearing the three angels' messages. And she really fell in love with Jesus. And she wanted to follow him. The husband threatened her. The husband said, no, 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 no. If you, if, you, if you follow him, I will leave you. And she said, but I want to follow Jesus. 
He said, if you follow him, I will leave you. So she hesitated. She struggled. But as much as she could, she would sneak out and go hear the messages again. And the more that she heard the story of the gospel is the more she fell in love with Jesus. And then she would go back and she'd tell her husband again, honey, I'm going to follow Jesus. And now the husband took it up a notch. He says, if you follow Christ, he says, I will kill you. I will kill you. Well, she kept going to the meetings. And the minister made an announcement that there'll be a baptism. And when the minister made the announcement that there will be a baptism, she could not resist the influence of the Spirit of God. And she said, I will go. I will be baptized. And when they went out to that nice little lake and so many people were getting baptized, the sister was there in her little baptismal robe. She accepted Jesus and his truth and she was willing to do whatever it takes. All of a sudden, as she's getting ready to go into the water, they noticed a rustle. They noticed a man coming with great fierceness and anger, moving people out of his way. And as he's moving people out of his way, he comes and he had a weapon in his hand. He came over to her, looked her in the eyes, took the weapon up and said, didn't I tell you that if you do this, I will kill you? She looked him in the eyes with tears. And she only had two words to say to him. She said, I must. He says, you mean to tell me that I am telling you I will end your life right now. And you still not going to turn back. She looked him in the eyes and she said, I must. It was at that moment that his hand slowly went down. And he said, if God could make you change like this and get you to a point that you'd be willing to lose your life just to follow him. He said, I want to know this God. He dropped his knife, fell on his knees and hugged her. And he cried like a baby and said, please pray for me. I want this God. And instead of one person getting baptized, it was two. Jesus in the family. Happy, happy home. Jesus brought the broken home. And he fixed it. For some of you, perhaps for most of you, it's nice when husband and wife go together on the journey. It's nice when it's like that. But sometimes, most times, it doesn't work out like that. Somebody has to take the lead first. Now, God has called the men to take the lead. But if for some reason, if that man will not take the lead, sisters, take the lead. Lead your husband to Jesus. Be faithful in that which is least. You'll find that God will enable you to be faithful in that which is much. And maybe through the, un, maybe through the believing spouse, the unbelieving spouse will be converted to Jesus. And this is my prayer for every single home in this room. I pray that heaven pours down in your house. And I pray that your lives will be changed for the better. 
because you have come to know him as it is your privilege to know him. And so if you're saying, oh, I want a revival in my home. I want a revival in my home. I want heaven in my home. And if that's your desire, would you stand to your feet with me? I want heaven in my home. God will give it. God will give it. And as you stand, I want you to know that Jesus stands with you. He is your support. He is your aid. He's your best friend. And he loves you with an everlasting love. And may God's love and grace be with you and support you. And may heaven enter your homes. Let's bow forward of prayer. Loving Father, we are eternally grateful that you have showed us how we can set our houses in order. And Lord, there's always more to show. There's always more to study. There's always more to reveal. These were just feeble efforts to seek to bring about the truth as it is in Jesus. And Lord, I thank you for those who have taken their stand and who recognize their need for you. I ask you, dear God, to do a miracle on their behalf. And that whatever the grudges are, whatever the burdens are, whatever the bitterness, the anger, the resentment, please, through a revelation of the cross, may you remove this bitterness, this anger, and this resentment. Show our brothers once again how to be priests, how to be lawmakers, and how to be heads of their home. And may we do it in the manner of Christ so that we can do it right. Help the wives, Lord, to please Hold not grudges. Help them to cooperate and to let their husbands get the opportunity to redeem the time. Father, there may be some women here who the men of their households are gone, whether it be through death, divorce, or otherwise. And now they have households that they have to run. I pray that you'll ever help them to remember that though they may feel alone, they are not alone. For there still is a man in the house, and his name is Jesus. And I pray that he would become so real to the children and to the woman that she will be content in the state in which she is in. And whatever way she can be a leader in her home, empower her to do so. And then by your grace, bridge in those gaps until the appointed time, even if it would be that you would bring another man in their life. Father, I thank you that you are in the time of drawing the hearts of children to fathers and fathers to children. Most importantly, the hearts of us as your children to you, our heavenly father. Thank you, dear God, for speaking to our hearts. May all of us truly set our houses in order. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.com dot org.